Hello and welcome to What's the Story Ghost? I'm your host Annette. And I'm Stephen. And today we are on episode 78. Open the gate. Uh, your bingo calls are amazing. I don't even know if they're real or not. I'm not gullible. I'm just going to go along with them. I don't know. If it's just cockney <laughs> slang. That's all a bingo call is. Um, this week's story is a little um, true crimey, but also still spooky. I just think it's such a brilliant story. It's to follow on from last week. We crack on? Crack on. Following on from last week's episode of Nursery Rhymes and Their Creepy Origins, I thought it would be fun to tell the tale of one such lady who had a not-so-soft and soothing rhyme created just for her. No, her rhyme would be the one that would tell people long after she was gone a story of her suspected savagery. Now, there are very many conflicting theories as to this young woman's true story, and unfortunately, women in the past have been misrepresented but also underestimated. Take, for instance, the story of Goldilocks. Was she really an innocent little girl who just wanted a place to sit, a bowl of porridge and a nap? Or was she a kleptomaniac who got caught robbing a poor family of bears blind? Or maybe Alice. Was she really just a curious little thing filled with wonder? Or was she a raging gambler who got caught cheating in a game of high-stakes poker in a speakeasy called the Rabbit Hole? Surely not, I hear you cry. But this rhyme leaves little to the imagination. It tells us who, and with what, but not why. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Andrew Borden is now dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. Pretty self-explanatory, one would think, despite some inaccuracies. It was her stepmother, not her mother. It was a hatchet, not an axe. And it was 18 and 11 wax, not 40 and 41. But anyway, I can't figure out if this is one of America's most notorious unsolved murders or a perfect example of how xenophobia, gender stereotypes and wealth all played a role in Lizzie Borden's potentially getting away with murder. Let's discuss the who first. Living in the Borden residence were Andrew, Abby, Emma and Lizzie. Abby was Andrew's second wife and stepmother to Andrew's two surviving daughters. Also living in the home was an Irish family maid named Bridget Sullivan, but the family called her Maggie. And although not living in the home, John Morse, brother to Sarah Borden, the girl's birth mother, was staying in the home at the time of the murders. He was visiting Andrew to discuss business matters. The relationship between the Borden sisters and their stepmother, Abby, was not a close one. It hadn't always been that way, though. Five years before the murders, Lizzie had fallen out with her stepmother so bad that it resulted in her going from calling Abby mother to Mrs. Borden. It's also said that they were worried that Abby only married their father for his money. Andrew struggled financially for much of his life until he eventually found success. He manufactured and sold furniture and caskets. He was a director in multiple textile mills and owned commercial property. He also became a successful property developer. Together, the two sisters helped to manage the rental properties owned by Andrew. But he had made many enemies due to his hard nature, as well as his reputation for being very tight with money. Needless to say, he was more than comfortable financially. At the time of his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, equivalent to 9.5 million today. But despite that, Andrew's home was one of the few affluent homes without indoor plumbing, something we today would consider a basic necessity. 
It's thought that Lizzie had more than one motive, but this one would be the one that seemed as compelling a motive as they come. Greed. Lizzie reportedly yearned for a fancier lifestyle that was denied by her wealthy but frugal father and was allegedly enraged when she learnt that her father had bought a house for his sister-in-law. But of all the people living in the family home at the time, the only person who was never even considered a suspect was Andrew's eldest daughter, Emma, as she had the good sense to be out of town at the time. This is how the events were said to have unfolded, as per bostonghosts.com. Sarah's brother John arrived on the evening of August 3rd and stayed the night in the family's guest room. After breakfast the next morning, Andrew and John went into the sitting room and chatted for nearly an hour. Around 8.48am, God only knows why anyone thought to take note of the exact time, John left to buy a pair of oxen and to visit his niece, planning to return to the Borden household around noon. Andrew left for his usual walk around 9 that morning. Although cleaning the guest room was often a chore delegated to Lizzie or Emma, Abby went upstairs sometime between 9 and half 10 in the morning to make the bed. I'm not sure how they could have known back then, given they didn't have the tools to establish a time of death or how a crime went step by step so accurately, but it's thought that Abby died first. According to the forensic investigation, they were able to ascertain that Abby was facing her killer when the attack occurred. She was struck first on the side of the head with a hatchet, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head, killing her. I never read any article talking about defensive wounds, so I don't think I would be wrong to assume that Abby knew her killer. And maybe it just didn't register with her that that person she knew, or potentially called family, was about to kill her. Andrew returned from his morning stroll around half past ten, His key failed to open the door, so he began knocking, and when the housemaid Maggie went to open it, she saw that the lock had jammed. She would later testify that when she muttered a curse due to the jammed lock, as you do, she heard Lizzie laughing. She didn't see Lizzie, but stated that the giggles were coming from the top of the stairs. At this time, Abby was already dead. This was significant because anyone on the second floor would have seen the body in the guest room, Lizzie later denied being upstairs during the trial. Lizzie stated that she then helped her father remove his boots and slip on some house shoes before he lay on the sofa for a nap. This story was contradicted by the crime scene photos as Andrew lay dead on the couch with his boots still on his feet. Lizzie then informed Maggie of a sale in town and permitted her to go, but Maggie was feeling unwell and stayed home instead retiring to her room for her nap. Maggie testified that she was on her third floor bedroom resting when just before 10 past 11, she heard Lizzie call from downstairs. Maggie, come, come quick. quick. Father's, Father's dead. dead. Someone's, Someone's come in and, and killed him. him. Andrew was found slumped over the couch in the sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet. One of his eyeballs had been split clean in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when he was attacked. He was still bleeding at the time Maggie saw him, which made it obvious that the murder had only recently taken place. So where was the murderer now? Lizzie's initial answers to the police were strange and contradicting. Initially, she reported hearing scraping and groans. Two hours later, she told police that she heard nothing. When asked where her stepmother was, she stated that Abby had received a note to go and visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned home and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. 
Maggie and a neighbour that had come by, Mrs Churchill, went upstairs and saw Abby lying on the floor of the guest room face down. Most of the police officers that interviewed Lizzie found her attitude to be a bit suspicious. Some said she was too calm. Despite this, no one bothered to check her clothes for bloodstains. They were criticised for their lack of diligence when they only peeked into Lizzie's room, but left shortly after when Lizzie said she wasn't feeling well and wanted to lie down. In the basement of the home, police found two hatchets, one with a broken handle. It was suspected of being the murder weapon, as the break in the handle appeared fresh, and it had been deliberately covered with ash and dust to make it seem as if it had been in the basement for quite some time, untouched. Also in the basement was a bucket of bloody clothes. Lizzie claimed they were from what she described as her time of the month. Also, due to the random onset of illness before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew and Abby's stomach contents were tested for poison. All came back normal. Later that night, officers stayed close to the house in case the murderer came back to finish off the rest of the family. He stated that he saw Lizzie and her friend enter the cellar, carrying an oil lamp and a slop pail. He saw them both exit later and saw Lizzie over the sink at one point. A few days later, after police told Lizzie she was a suspect in the murders, the mayor visited the home and found Lizzie tearing up a dress and putting it into a fire. She told him that it was because it had been ruined with paint. Lizzie was brought to trial and many reasons were given as to why she would have committed the murders. So the mystery, I guess, is if Lizzie did do it, then why? I mean, yes, she had motive. She had a lot of motives, actually, but they weren't just about money. There were far more captivating motives than greed or hate or the accusations made against her father of abuse. One suggestion was that she was being physically and sexually assaulted by her father, which drove her to kill him and Abby, who did nothing to stop him. Or a motive that has never been confirmed was that Abby walked in on an intimate moment between her stepdaughter Lizzie and the housemaid Maggie, and that both Lizzie and Maggie were responsible for the murders. But again, that was never confirmed. The most shocking piece of information I read was when the pharmacist who testified at Lizzie's trial said that she tried to buy a poison called prussic acid the day before her father and stepmother were killed, claiming it was to put an edge on a seal skin cape. Prussic acid was a lethal poison and only available with a doctor's prescription. Therefore, the pharmacist refused to sell it to her. But strangely enough, the jury never heard about the incident at trial. Desperate, the prosecution tried to reveal Lizzie's narcissistic lack of emotion, claiming she didn't care about her dead parents or anyone at all. Dramatically, they brought out two mysterious wood cases as the jury watched and Lizzie looked on with curiosity. Grabbing the latch, the prosecutor swung open the boxes revealing the bashed-in skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden. The prosecution anticipated Lizzie's reaction as cold and unemotional to such a shocking and dark sight, proving her murderous intent to the jury. Nope. This may have been the moment that marked Lizzie as an innocent woman because she screamed, stood up and swooned before fainting to the floor. It wasn't long after the jury came back with a verdict of not guilty and Lizzie Borden was free, deemed innocent by the court, but thought guilty by everyone else. After a long and extensive trial, Lizzie was eventually acquitted of all charges. She moved into a more affluent neighbourhood with her sister, where she changed her name, but was ostracised by her neighbours. 
The sisters lived together for years. Then Emma suddenly moved out in 1905. No one knows why. But a post on the Lizzie Borden Society forum in 2013 from a user named Nancy Drew summed it up to possibly one of the following reasons. One, she caught Lizzie drinking and smoking after getting in with a local theatre group. Two, she found out Lizzie was sleeping with Nance O'Neill from her theatre group. Or three, she found out Lizzie actually killed Andrew and Abby. Even though the girls were not talking at the end, they both died only nine days apart. I know that's not the strangest part of the story. No, the strangest part of the story is both girls are buried with the family in Falls River Oak Grove Cemetery. Lizzie is now resting not far from Abby and Andrew. The Lizzie Borden house is an infamous bed and breakfast now. You can sleep in the room where Abby was murdered and have tea where they found Andrew. Guests have been said to have reported seeing an elderly woman walking around, and while assuming it was the B&B owner or a maid, they would be wrong. Apparently it's Abby, reliving her last few moments of completing her morning tasks before entering the guest room only to be murdered again and again. Abby is seen mostly on the second floor hallway and the guest bedroom. What is even creepier is it's not just sights or sounds. Some who have slept in that room have felt the bed sheets tighten around them and they hear the brushing as if someone is sliding their hand across the covers and then the slight pressure against their chest and legs as Abby meticulously straightens the fabric, calmly making the bed on what is thought to be a normal Thursday morning. Now it's said that Lizzie is not in the home as she wasn't living there towards the end of her life but there have been some guests who have stayed in the room next to Lizzie's room and made some reports. It's subtle but undeniable. The sound of a woman crying on the other side of the wall. I've often said it's not only where someone dies or where they had their happiest moments that they haunt. Sometimes they're stuck in the place that they hated the most for all of eternity. What do you think of that story? That was a good story. So let me get the gist of it. Okay. So, Lizzie. Yes. Allegedly mm-hmm. murders a lot of her family. Her stepmother and her father. So she murders two people? Yes. And then she goes to court and cries wolf and gets away with it. Yeah, it kind of seems a little bit like they brought the the skulls out as a scare oh tactic my God, and she just fake fainted. It's, it's, the, it's the original glove that doesn't fit. OJ Simpson <laughs> yeah but doesn't it just go to show I know this is a little bit more true crimey I did get a bit of the ghosty stuff in at the end but it just goes to show remember last week when I had said that the Muffin Man unfortunately spoiler is not the first documented killer mm-hmm. and then we were talking about the lady who was actually the f- their first documented killer right. but she's not documented because everyone was like what is it she got away with like 20 21 murders before she eventually was hung for the 20 it was either 21 murders or 24 murders and she was hung by the 22nd or the 25th and she's just the reason I think she got away with it is because she was a woman oh yeah well a woman she got away with it for that long she didn't get away with it no obviously she didn't get away with it you can only kill so many husbands and 11 of your 13 kids before people kind of go well we, we only know the limit of the amount of people a person can kill of the people who got caught yeah or the people that they own up to. Yeah, it's the same thing. And I, it's it's mad though because I was watching um, 
Elementary on Prime with Lucy Liu and I can't remember the other guys, uh, Johnny Lee Miller. Um, and there's something gut-wrenching, I suppose, for families, especially if they're wanting justice for themselves or for their family or for the person that they, like that other person killed. The reason it's so hard for cops or, or detectives or whatever not to just shoot the guy is because they only know about the five people. There could be six, there could be seven. Yeah. They might not have found all five. They might not know everything. I also think that's probably why I loved Criminal Minds. Oh yeah, that's um, a big one. Because the thought of actually just getting into the head or getting into the mind of a killer, um, to me it sounds fascinating. To them it's actually a tool. You literally have to put yourself in the mindset of a killer mm-hmm. to be able to retrace their steps or what would have been his next move. I think she got away with it because she swooned and yeah. told them that she had her period and they all went ooh tampons no <laughs> innocent <laughs> bye <laughs> men are awkward Steve. yeah yeah can you see I have I have two people oh did you get characters for me I have to, well the Abby the ghost of Abby yes the mum yeah. step mum Cathy Bates yes she hasn't played a role in a while she was on last week's episode that was the joke dear oh sorry okay <laughs> Okay, I'm for, for those at home that can't see my eyebrows, <laughs> I was looking at it as if to say, any moment now. It didn't, the penny didn't uh, drop. And then for Lizzie, yes. I'm thinking Jennifer Lawrence. Okay. Okay. Because I could see her in a psychological thriller. I could see that. She, she has a broad She's versatile. Range. She's yeah. very versatile. She could go all Hunger Games. How do you know what you for the dad? <sighs> Ah no, I don't want to push you now because if I push you now, you're just going to pick somebody. Chris Pines. <laughs> okay, I just went on about. Um, don't worry, darling. I'm probably going to have cut it out, and I called him Chris Pike, and I don't know if Stephen just named Chris Pine because I obviously got it wrong. But you know, that's the punny haws that go on behind the scene, behind the scenes. Um, I didn't fall down a rabbit hole this week. Did you talk I, about I haven't, a rabbit hole? I haven't fallen down a rabbit hole in ages. No, but you know what it is? I'm starting to... I, I really think that I should just sit down and just read all the Brothers Grimm's books. Yeah. Because, I mean, granted, yeah, if I was to write a fiction, I would literally do nearly like a piss take of all of the stories that I grew up watching. Yeah. Like a Dublin version of Alice in Wonderland or uh, somebody... I think it's your one who does the... Gives a laugh page did a mock of Cinderella knocking at the door to get her stepmother and her stepsister's attention and she's like come on your halo's outside or something like that have you never seen the video um, well, she's like are you not coming she was like no machine delivery never arrived and it's basically yeah. the really really old cartoon with her doing a voiceover yeah. she's absolutely yeah. brilliant but that's that's probably what I, I would end up falling down that route of you know what? How funny can I make this? Because I'm Irish, and if I'm not funny, I have nothing. <laughs> You're supposed to laugh. So <laughs> we finish up there. Say your words. Okay. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I will, of course, include the links in the show notes. And if you have any questions on this or any other episode, our socials are What's the Story Ghost on Instagram and What's the Story Ghost at gmail.com If you have any personal stories you would like to share, and those are all my words. Exit jingle. Exit jingle. The wind blew, the X flew, Johnny came home with his Bye! Instead of saying the bad words, you were supposed to edit. You were supposed to say bye.